0: Hey there, and welcome to The Refuge Podcast. We're a podcast of Crossroads Community Church here in Nampa, Idaho. And here at the church, we believe in being a place of refuge, transformation, and partnership with God. My name is Charlie, and I am a pastor here at the church.
1: And I am Lissette, and I am also a pastor here at the church.
0: And this week, we're talking about Dr. Tim Anstein's message on Ichad. I think this is part eight. Part 7? Part 7, I think. And uh, in this Ichad series, which means alone, it's the Hebrew word for alone. And uh, we've been talking about how our God is alone. And really, he brought in a really cool... um documentary he calls it I think he calls it a a documentary on monastic life in Mexico
1: (laughs) Nacho Libre Nacho Libre
0: which he jokingly calls a (laughs) um, a documentary and if you don't know the movie Nacho Libre it stars Jack Black and it is most certainly not a documentary but a really funny movie about a a Mexican monk
1: I will just say so the Peterson family which is us we're my husband's last name, Charles, is Peterson. So anyway, uh, the Peterson family movie is Nacho Libre. So we've seen it a few times. Yeah,
0: so we were prepared for this message.
1: Yeah, we're definitely studied up. Not
0: by Bible college or a lifetime of following Jesus, <laughs> but because of a Jack Black movie.
1: Really good at watching Nacho Libre.
0: Um, but he, he talks about it in the message, but he uses it as an example of uh, Nacho. The guy played by Jack Black has a friend who believes in science, but Nacho's a monk who believes in God, and he yeah. says, I do not believe in God, I believe in science. <laughs>
1: It's hilarious.
0: Yeah, it's a hilarious movie. So, But uh, he, he's going to talk about this tension between God and science, yeah. this, t- this tension between what's real. Is it just the physical, or is there something beyond the physical, or this idea of secular and mm-hmm. spiritual? And, and we're going to talk a little bit about that after we hear from Dr. Tim.
2: Good morning. Good morning. All right, let's start with a word of prayer and get this started right. Uh, Jesus, this is all about you right now. Thank you so much for being the living word. Thank you so much for the truth of your written word that we can navigate the confusion, the myopia, the lies of this world, this crazy world. Lord, may we swim upstream and hear your voice and know you. And I pray for each person in this room right now, Lord. I pray that the power of your spirit will be challenging our minds and our hearts, that we will see you and the truth and beauty of who you are Lord, I want to stand out of the way and ask you to speak as the great Logos, as the great speaker, the great God of love. We need you right now. We're here to hear you. So speak through your word in your name. Amen. Amen. So uh, my name is Tim Anstein, one of the teaching pastors here at Crossroads. If you're new, welcome. Uh, I get the privilege of being a part of this amazing series called the Ichad series. And as I've sat out in the over there here on this side of the sanctuary through this series, listening to the various Echad moments. There's a couple of them that have really stuck out to me personally. Uh, One of them was Pastor Alex and and Jeff when they talked about the ichad versus the Michad. And, and And as I was looking at that contrast between why is it that there's always some tendency of me to look at myself, it's frustrating. My default is always Myself. Why? Why do I abandon his aloneness for my aloneness? Why is my default to look at me instead of to look at him? And as pastor over the last couple of weeks has talked about this drift, it's a natural drift from him to myself. And why is it that I never drift towards him? Why is it that I always drift away from him to myself? What is ultimately going on with this drift? And one of the things that as, as I prayed through and, and outlined and had, had lunch with Pastor Jim just to kind of get my thoughts, which there are lots of them on this series, kind of whittled down, I began to question the, the truth of what is really real. This is something that, 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 that is a passion of mine as a, as a chemistry professor. I, I love the integration of Jesus into science through the lens of philosophy. I, I like this kind of this, this, this beautiful harmony that I see between these three areas. And as I began to question and wrestle with reality, it dawned on me. If we don't understand the true nature of reality, we're probably going to end in a cul-de-sac that doesn't lead to truth. You see, we're given two choices. Either reality is secular or reality is not secular. We might call that spiritual or sacred. And we see this tension through the Western mind between reality being either secular or sacred. Some of you have probably seen the documentary on the monastic life in Mexico. The title of it was Nacho Libre. It's not a documentary? It's not a documentary. Okay, well anyway, the movie Nacho Libre, some of you have seen. And if you haven't seen that movie, there's this beautiful tension between the protagonist and the tritagonist where these two, the, the, the protagonist, which is Nacho, he's the, he's the monk, he wants to convert Esquilito, or Stephen, as he calls him, and he wants him to believe in God. And throughout the movie, there is this tension between these two. In fact, he baptizes him in a bowl of water real fast, and, and, and it's just hilarious. But Stephen, in this one moment, says this, and I think this is profound. He says, I don't believe in God. I believe in science. And that tension... Is real. Where does that tension come from? Is that tension something that we should begin to understand and look at? Yes. Because here's the deal. If reality is not secular, if if there is something outside of the interplay of the atoms, bouncing around and moving around, if there is someone outside of that, then let's be honest, Reality is not secular. Secular is a myth. If there is something or someone outside of the interplay of the particles, there is no such thing as secular. Yet we still label schools as a secular school, it's secular books, secular fiction. Secular, we use that word. And that assumes that there's nothing outside of the particles. But I would say that most of us in this room probably believe there is someone outside of the particles. So what do we do with this bifurcation? What do we do with this separation of secular, sacred or secular, spiritual? And I want to challenge us at the foundation of our own country If you go back to the amazing university, the secular university known as Harvard, you see this in their bylaws of 1646. Now, I left the original writing, it looks like there's typos in there. This is the way it was written. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. And therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. And seeing the Lord only giveth wisdom, let every one seriously set himself by prayer in secret to seek it of him. That does not sound like a secular university. So what has happened? You see, the original university, the word itself, unity out of diversity, was an attempt to take all of the fragmentations of the disciplines, the ologies, right? Biology, histology, all these ologies, and bring them into wholeness, bring them into congruency. But here's the problem who or what principle? is big enough to unify philosophy and chemistry and biology and history and business. You see, when we removed the linchpin and we separated secular from sacred or spiritual, and when we threw Jesus out with the bathwater, the university lost the personality who would bring unity to the university because Jesus was the only person big enough to unify. So today, we have fractured usities or plural usities or whatever you want to call them. They're not unified because they don't have a personality big enough to unify around. So when we look at this historically, when we go back through and we look at, and I'm not going to bog down too deeply in in philosophy, but we have to weed through a little bit. So stay with me on this. Because I think it's very important to understand where this division, this bifurcation of sacred and secular came from. And ultimately, we're going to land the plane on our own heart. So that's where we're headed with this. And when you look at someone like Marx here, you could look at Nietzsche or Feuerbach. You could look at a lot of these, these atheistic, materialistic philosophers. They believed in just the bombardment and the movement of atoms. There's nothing outside of them. They just happen to bounce around and move around and life goes on. And, and you'll, this is not, materialism is not a new, it's actually an ancient belief. Epicurus here, 300 BC about, was when he was the one that first came up with the idea of, no, you know what, if, if there is a God or if there are gods, he's way away from us and doesn't really care. So it's really up to you, since you're a sensory bag of for looking for pleasure, go ahead and go down the hedonistic road, because you ultimately you just want to satisfy all those pleasures. Because God or God's, their way out, they don't care. And from this belief, we begin to see the separation, the bifurcation of man doing his thing, and God or God's out there doing their own thing, but not really interacting or, or wanting a relationship with man. And as you fast forward through the philosophical world, you see that the couple other players that play into this, one of the big ones was William of Ockham. William of Ockham in the 14th century, it's a very important one. William of Ockham was questioning the Augustinian universals and the platonic forms. Now that's blah, blah, blah. What he was doing was saying, look, there, isn't, there really isn't starting with some big absolute. And then because there's something that's absolute, then we can make something of the little things. He says, really, ultimately, it's just the little things. We just happen to categorize them. And that's where nominalism comes from. We just name them things. We might name it relationship. We might name it science, but it's not real until we name it. And so this was a huge, huge shift from an absolute God teaching absolute universals, therefore all of the little things like relationships making sense. Now, to Occam's credit, at the end of the day, even though he tried to shatter Augustine's ten universals, he said that really the really only thing that we can know is what's revealed in Scripture. So even though August, or excuse me, Occam was the, the, the rock in the proverbial philosophical shoe, he still believed that this is the only way we really know what we really know. Well, that was kind of cool to his credit. Fast forward, moving on into the Renaissance. Here you start to see this bifurcation. Man is gaining in prominence, right? You are, it's all about man. In fact, it was protagonists who said, man is the measure of all things. And there began to be this new birth, this optimistic hope that man and the power of man can finally rise up out of the dark ages of the myth of religion and save himself in the world. That's a great optimism. And we see that. And in in that interplay, we also had the Reformation in there. But from the Renaissance, we then move into this great scientific awakening, the scientific revolution were man autonomous and free from any kind of god or religion or all this medieval baggage man can discover the world around him and harness the power of this universe which he viewed as a cold non-god related machine but ultimately what's happening man is getting bigger god is getting smaller until finally he dies in 1960. What do we do with that? What do we do with that? Because we in a church live in the Western culture. We live in this bifurcated tension. We live in this tense, sacred, secular split. Well, it keeps on going, just a quick, the enlightenment then. We have Kierkegaard coming in saying, I think therefore I am. So my reasoning by man is autonomous reasoning. We figure things out and we we don't need any revelation. We just need to reason our way to ultimate reality. Which is why when you look at the statue of David there, there's two artificially large entities, his head and his hands. They're artificially large compared to his body. And that's because, because by my reasoning and by my hard work, man can do it which leads us then to what I think is pretty cool, and that is the uh, Industrial Revolution. And you have to be honest, man. The Industrial Revolution was pretty cool. I mean, we're harnessing fossil fuels. We're, harness, we're making pistons, which means we're making hydraulics, which means we are making giant machines. Have you ever been on a kind of D11 cat? Those things are awesome. My kids were playing on a D6 the other day. Those things are incredible. That's all through the power, fossil fuels, and hydraulics. And man, Can do it. Man can build it. Look at man, right? And it was almost like science said, yes, man is all that in a bag of chips. But then something happened. In the 20th century, that optimism came crashing down. You know why? 20th century was the bloodiest century of all centuries combined through the two world wars. Because not only Did man harness fossil fuels and pistons and other cool things like penicillin? What did man also do? Also invented gas chambers, atom bombs. You get the point. And when the philosophers look back and look on the inside, at the end of the day, why is it that man always goes the wrong way? direction. You see, the optimism died into this deep, dark nihilism, which is, it's meaningless, it's purposeless, life isn't anything, you're just a bag of sensories, go for it. Great philosophy right there. In fact, we get to Nietzsche and he says, every belief, every considering something true is necessarily false because there is simply no true world. And there's where we stop. Or do we? You see, this is where this bifurcation of the sacred secular plays in. Francis Schaeffer in the 20th century was so brilliant in his simplifying this for us. And he says, he called it the upper story, lower story. And this upper story, lower story. So we live in this tension right now. We have those areas of our life that are upper story things like your religion. All the stuff that we're doing right here this morning, that's all upper story. But this doesn't belong out in the workplace. This doesn't belong in the courtroom. This doesn't belong in the science lab. This is your thing. This is upper story. Good for you. You go to church. You listen to Air One. Good for you. But there's no place for that in the public arena. You keep your Jesus or your Buddha or your Allah to yourself. Good for you. You make that, as Kierkegaard said, you make that leap of faith to the upper room just so you feel better. But ultimately, what is reality? Reality is just the banging together of particles. But here's the problem with that. We've made an assumption that Epicureanism or materialism is true. Therefore, we derive a fallacy. The problem is what is really real. Remember, if there is someone or something outside of the particles, there is no such thing as sec- secular. Secular. If there is a God who spoke, ah, and this is, then ultimate reality is not secular. It is sacred or spiritual. In fact, if you do a word study in the Old Testament, you won't once find the word spiritual. What? Why? Why? Because to label something spiritual was to also label something as not spiritual. To the Hebrew mind, everything was unified and spiritual. Gardening? Spiritual? You bet. Vocation? Spiritual? Oh, you bet. My driving? (laughs) Can't be spiritual. Oh, it is. I'm constantly under attack during my driving in the spiritual realm. I know there's demons and angels out there wrestling with my driving And you see this tension. You see this bifurcation. And for us who view life through the lens of Scripture, what we need to begin to walk is in the view of all truth, which is that everything is spiritual. Everything we do is spiritual. And I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to go into my secular mode, right? Get up in the morning, have my power quiet time, you know, throw on some air one. And the rest of the day, I'm giving him the Heisman. Not on purpose, but it's just because well he what, he really wants to come into my, my shopping and my you know you know all these little things mundane things I do like picking out socks in the morning yes hey what socks are you getting what if what happened if I made everything I viewed everything in my life everything a spiritual there becomes this integration there becomes this wholeness even secular authors. Some of you might have read, read Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of a Highly Effective People. Secular author, listen to this. Intrinsic security doesn't come from what other people think of us or how they treat us. It doesn't come from our circumstance or our position. It comes from within. It comes from accurate paradigms and correct principles, deep in our own mind and heart. It comes from inside-out congruence, from living a life of integrity in which our daily habits reflect our deepest values. What do we do with this? This word congruency, as Pastor pointed out last week when I met with him, this is the desire To become whole, congruent, integrated, instead of disintegrated. Which brings us then to our story for the day. Some of you know, if you're new to the church, about King David. King David, if you are new to the church, was probably one of the greatest kings of, 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 of Israel. An amazing man of God. In fact, in 1 Samuel, we're introduced to him this way. But now your kingdom must end For the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. So Saul's kingdom is ending. David's rising into the kingship position. And he says, the Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Now, Acts tells us this. But God removed Saul and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And so we're introduced into this amazing man, David, who is known after a man, or known as a man after God's own heart. Heart, inner person. His heart was God's heart. And as you read through 2nd Samuel you move quickly on into 2nd Samuel 11. And when you get to 2nd Samuel 11 you have to say to yourself, "What's up with this?" How can this man after God's own heart have this chapter devoted to this epic failure with Bathsheba and Uriah? And if you remember the story you could just read down and It's like a who's who's list. The pastor pointed out that more than likely, David violated every command of those dealing with man. <laughs> What's up with that? Because right before 2 Samuel 11, you have 2 Samuel 6, where David is so enamored with his re- worship with the Lord that he barely has any clothes on and he's just reckless abandoning dancing in their presence. Worshipping the Lord. But over here, in 2 Samuel 11, David doesn't go to war like the rest of the kings. He stays home. He wakes up, as the chapter describes, from a nap early in the evening. King taking a nap early in the evening, kind of cool. Then he's perusing upper story. Of course, sees Bathsheba ultimately commits adultery, she gets pregnant, then what does he have to do? Now he has to cover all this up, and how does he do that? He says, Uriah, why don't you come on home to try to cover this up, and Uriah is a faithful servant and he doesn't go back to his home. And David's like, well crud, now I really have to cover this thing up, and what does he do? Through Uriah, Uriah's his own messenger of his death, sends a letter to the front lines, which says put me in the front lines and pull back, ultimately gets killed. How can a man after God's own heart who recklessly abandons this worship of this presence of him then have this fragmented, disintegrated, messed up area of his life? How does that work? And what do we do with that? Ultimately, what happens with that disintegration of the heart? You see, it's so easy for us because of our upper room, lower room bifurcation in the Western world to think in the Greek world, which is compartmentalized, fragmented. I have boxes for everything. I've got a box for my vocation. I've got a box for my entertainment. I've got a box for all of these things. So how ultimately do we bring integration into all of this. And what do we do with this? And here's the cool thing I think is amazing. And that is this. When we begin to allow our heart to further fragment is when we are living the Michad life. When I take these little areas of my life and become Lord of those areas, God of those areas, Michad instead of acha echad, then my heart begins to fragment. And I begin to compartmentalize areas of my life that are not integrated into wholeness. Just like David could be out there worshiping sincerely and right around the corner go and commit adultery and murder. It's a fragmented heart. And what do we do with this? What's the answer to this bifurcation and fragmentation. Well, we only need to go one more chapter to 2 Samuel 12 and notice his good friend Nathan. Listen to this. This is powerful. Then Nathan said to David, you're the man. (laughs) You are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I'd have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. What does Nathan say is the answer to a disintegrated, fragmented heart in life? The word of the Lord. Where sin fragments, the word brings wholeness, brings this beautiful congruency into our world. You see, the author of Hebrews says it this way. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. Listen, it exposes our innermost thoughts, and desires. Now, the aha to me in putting this together is this. In the Greek, there are two Greek words for the word word. A lot of words right there. One of them is the word rhema. You see that in Ephesians 6, where the sword of the Spirit is the word, the rhema of God. It's literally the phrases and the sayings of Jesus, whether orally or written down. That's scripture. That's what we call this. The second use of the word word is the word Logos. Logos is the divine order of reality. It's the essence of the really real. And the word that Hebrews, the author of Hebrews uses here is Logos. It's the same word that were introduced with Jesus in John 1, 1, which says, in the beginning was the word. The logos in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word, the logos was God. You see, it's the logos of God that takes a fractured and fragmented and disintegrated heart and brings wholeness and healing and congruency. Do we want that? Yeah. Do we want to live? You see, that is life when Jesus is introduced as the way, the truth, the life. He looks at my fractured heart. He looks at my fractured world. And he says, are you going to take that fractured reality, that bifurcated reality, that fragmented heart, and allow the living word of me to come in and go to work? You see, I'm beginning to view the knock. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. There's the big knock. Come on into the closet, Jesus. (laughs) This is my life. And now what I'm learning are the little knocks. Because when I look into the closet, I see a compartmentalized, fragmented life. And some of those areas of my life, if I'm going to be transparent and honest, are incredibly difficult to break up. Some of them have shame, guilt cycles that are years old, self medicating through my limbic system and dopamine receptors. It takes time, sincerity, and work and effort to begin to reprogram this old brain. But the more and more I'm able to take those compartments out, bring it up on the table and say, Jesus, go to work because I can't do this. I can't fix this one. I've tried my whole life sincerely to fix this, and it ain't happening. It's yours. You say you want to be Lord of this area of my life as well. You say you want to be master of this. It's yours. You bring integration into that area of my life because I can't do it and the more I'm sincere and honest and allow him as the living word to come into the fragmentation of my life and my reality, the more my heart's becoming congruent. The more my reality is breaking down this secular, sacred bifurcation to Jesus, everything, as Paul tells us in the poem of Colossians, was created by you and for you in you, all things are. Please, come into this. Please, oh, there's a box there. Yeah, Jesus, it's yours. I didn't see that one. What about this area? What about finances? It's yours. Vocation, it's yours. Sexuality, it's yours. All these areas of my life that I have lived a michad, boxing up in my Greek little comfort world, where I pull the boxes out when I need, are His. Or learning to bring him to the master. Understand healing and wholeness of my heart and my mind with the living, active words with the power of his alive and well spirit. Now, it gets frustrating. I, I meet with a group of guys that are honest about things and, and man, you just be like, okay, all of a sudden you get rid of like the elephant in the room. And lo and behold, the elephant's gone and now I see the sheep. What crud. So I go to work, hey, Jesus, I've got to work on the sheep. Get the sheep out of the room. And now the sheep are gone. awesome. What? Rabbits? <laughs> Who put the rabbits in here? And so we're sh- shooing the rabbits out of the room. And then I just, I think I got all the rabbits out, at least a couple of them stepped on. Lo and behold, there's mice. My heart is messed up. The level of disintegration, the level of separation and fragmentation is impressive, But the more I allow him, his truth, living word, to come into my life, to transform my heart, I'm seeing congruency. It's slow, but it's there. And you know what? It leads to peace. Shalom. When this congruency of inner harmony through the presence of the living word, my life is being transformed. My mind is being transformed. But it's not happening when it's michad, it is happening. When he alone is the God of life, the God of love, the God of wholeness, the God of healing, the God of truth, the God of congruency. He wants us whole. And where sin breaks it down, the word corrects it. Even David gets it. He says, I have hidden, what? Your word, where? In my heart. Why? That I won't sin against you, that I won't fragment my heart any longer. When you enter into my life for the truth of your word, both written and living, you bring wholeness to my heart. Some of the last words David wrote were these here in 2 Chronicles, excuse me, 1 Chronicles 28. This is his advice to Solomon. Right before Solomon is coronated, right before David dies, listen to this. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with what? Yeah, a whole heart, a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts, understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. And I love that word whole heart. Pastor pointed out that it's the selim. It's the Hebrew word selim. And it's an adjective that describes the words before it. And it means this. The very word wholehearted means a heart making a total of a collection of pieces. There is a integration a wholeness, an inner harmony when the living word comes into my life. Areas of my life where I've tried sincerely to fix continue to fragment. When I allow the living word into my whole life, vocation, shopping, education, teaching, fill in the blank, thought life, entertainment life, vacation, All of that is spiritual. None of that is a secular area of my life because I believe there is no such thing as secular. Jesus as all truth, Jesus as the living word, the logos, the essence of reality is the one that says, I'm here and available to bring congruency and wholeness to your life.
0: Well, I have to say, every time I hear Tim preach, I always walk away. First of all, just amazed at all of the things that I don't know. And also (laughs) so excited about how so many of those things from somebody who really studies chemistry and philosophy um, line up and and really point to Jesus in a cool way. And it was really cool. I thought he did a good job talking about his passion to look at philosophy and science and see Jesus in them. And I thought that was really cool.
1: Yeah. Tim's awesome. And I think... You know, sometimes a few things he says it might be over my head as I'm not really a science person (laughs) per se. But I think to a lot of people, it's like, oh, that's what I've been looking for. It's like it makes sense and it helps me to rectify these two worlds in my mind or helps me to rectify that these two things don't have to be at opposition all the time.
0: Yeah, especially for him being a college professor, you know, meeting these college students who some of them are studying chemistry. And to hear from a chemist that being um, in that world does not... Uh, point away from Jesus, but actually can point towards Jesus. You can be a
1: scientist and a Christian. Right. I
0: Mm -hmm. thought it was cool that, that idea of, and I I don't know if this is an actual linguistic breakdown of the word university, but he called it university, unity out of diversity. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was really cool. And and I've heard this before, but he really shared some quotes from kind of the founding papers of Harvard that Mm -hmm. pointed to Jesus as this, um, that the, the chief goal of life was to become like Jesus, yeah. you know, and that they were started to be a confluence of many disciplines centered around the personality of Jesus. And yet we've taken Jesus out of the university and therefore it's caused, um, because that personality is not there. Now university has become a place where there's so many different ideas and there's nothing to center us, right? There's nothing for us to come back to.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, we see, I I went to a liberal arts college before I, changed to a ministry degree. and went to a, a Christian college, but before that I was going to a liberal arts college and it's one of the most, uh, liberal, I'm um, not just liberal, but secular secularized. Um, it's just a really, it can be a really difficult place to follow Jesus. You have a lot of thought, um, really good thinkers, really talented thinkers saying, Hey, Christianity is stupid. It doesn't make any sense. Jesus cannot possibly be who he said he was. Um, and it's really just only one side of it presented now. So a lot of our college kids or our kids going to university are are really struggling. They're having a hard time. So I think this this stuff from Dr. Einstein is really important.
0: Yeah, and he, he walked through this idea of um spiritual and secular. And I think like what you're talking about is they go to this uh, college campus where they are told it is secular and they have no understanding that actually as a Christian, we don't believe in the idea of secular and spiritual, right. but that everything is spiritual right? and that spirituality is not this big oh, kind of spooky thing. But,
1: Can you do that again one oh. more time? Oh. Yeah, you know,
0: that's actually a sound effect. No, um, <laughs> you know, but actually that spirituality is meant to be an everyday thing. You know, and you talked about yeah. this idea of upper and lower story. That there's this, some of us, we have this upper story, this thing that we believe about God, Mm -hmm. but how does that translate into our everyday where God wants to live and and be with us?
1: Right. And I think that what you're really talking about is compartmentalizing. We're talking about having this part of our life that's spiritual, that we go to church and we maybe read our Bible or we maybe pray or whatever, but is that changing every part of our life? Does that change Mm -hmm. the way that I interact with you, my husband? Does it change the way that I parent my son? Does it change the way that I interact with my coworkers or...
0: And part of that is that we have the living God, right? That he wants to walk by. You know, we talked about this last week with yeah. Jim talking about a father who walks with us. You know, that we aren't meant to do this alone, but we're meant to do it with him.
1: Yeah, which is awesome because most religion, most religion that you're going to find is it's a set of rules or it's, but it's not this idea that it's alive yeah. and living like someone that's with you, in you, who's walking you through these things, who wants to have a relationship with you.
0: Right. Right. And, you know, he walked through this history of the idea of secular and where it came from and, you know, this idea of through the Reformation, this, you know, scientific revolution, enlightenment, industrial revolution. There was this hope in man, you know, Mm -hmm. and we know from scripture that um, if our hope is in man, be it me,
2: uh,
0: be it other people, um, my ultimate hope needs to be in man. This really real, this this spiritual reality, this reality of who Jesus is and, and in and God, not so much in man, be it me or other people.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I think that's part of the Akkad, obviously, that he was bringing in this idea of God alone. We have to put our hope in God alone.
0: Right. And when we go to Michad, which, you know, I think about a month ago now, you know. Which uh, is not a... Not a real word. It's not a word. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, we need to clarify that. Jeff and uh, Alex made it up, and it's been really helpful to say instead of ichad, God alone, we can say michad, me alone. And uh, when we do that, it fragments our heart, you know, and and he had a graphic there of the heart being fragmented. And, you know, we we talk about this fragmentation of the soul and this kind of scattering of, and it's really hard when uh, we don't understand that our heart is meant to be aligned with him. And when we make it about us or we make it about other people, there is a fragmentation of our life that mm-hmm. happens. And then we have to put things in a spiritual or a secular box mm-hmm. because things don't line up. And that tension, it can be really, really hard if we're yeah. trying to follow Jesus.
1: Yeah. You were talking about, um, there's a, a Jewish concept. What's it called again?
0: Oh, the nefesh.
1: Um, yeah. So it's this idea that- you're... It's the word for soul. Oh, yes. Thank you. But it encompasses this idea that we're a whole person. Like yeah. there's not little parts of us that are, you yeah. know-
0: yeah, and it's—the Bible Project does a great bit on it, and, and it really talks about this idea of the word for soul, nefesh, is not just that we are a spiritual being in a in a meat vehicle, right? That we're not just being pulled around by some spirit, and the body is just something that is bad, and that really comes from, you know, and Tim didn't talk about him, but Plato—well, he did a little bit because he talked about platonic ideals and that Plato had this idea that, that the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. And it's really a Greek idea that has stuck and has very much affected how we think of things today, and so we think of spirit as good, anything of this, anything that is flesh is bad, and that's because sin, you know, resides in the flesh. But then through the redeeming power of christ even our bodies will be resurrected and we will be resurrected as a whole person with a body Mm -hmm. not as some ghost and you know jim did a whole series on this last year you Mm -hmm. know this idea that we're going to be restored to heaven in our full bodies not Mm -hmm. in some weird spooky spiritual way
1: yeah which was
0: (laughs) sorry i thought you want that spiritual noise i just hit the the sound effect (laughs) key that's right
1: um yeah, no, I just think that's a really cool thing because it means that I'm, my whole person matters, my whole body. Like everything about me is integrated and together and it matters. Right. It's not just this, yeah, like you said, a weird mm. disembodied soul situation going on. I think yeah. that was really helpful when Jim spoke about it. And then obviously Tim bringing it up again. Right. Good.
0: Yeah. And I mean, this is, I think it's just makes so much sense for people that how we treat our bodies matters, mm, you know, yeah. that, you know, as, and I'm, this is somebody I struggle with, you know, my weight and trying to lose weight and eat healthy and, part of that struggle is a spiritual thing. You know, it's not a secular thing. It's not just a physical thing. Right. That that how we treat our bodies is a is a spiritual thing as well.
1: Well, and you see it in in even just the way that we live, right? It's like if I'm getting overweight or I'm having issues with my, like if I'm coming to work and I'm just totally disheveled all the time, well, it's probably because I'm having some sort of emotional issue or I'm, I'm depressed or I'm, right. you know, like, cause my spiritual, my internal, my soul affects my body and you can see the effects right. both directions.
0: Yeah. And our body. Yeah, that's true. They've mm-hmm. said that if to help with anxiety, depression, right. Working, mm-hmm. out, eating working healthier, out, eating healthy, those affect mm-hmm. us. So that's cool. And I love this, this whole message about the spiritual and the, um, how it affects everything about us, the physical, the secular, there is no such thing that it's all spiritual. So as you're listening today, you know, if you are struggling with something, understand that uh, God cares about you as a whole person and yeah. that, that following Jesus is meant to not only help you spiritually in some kind of high upper story way, but it's meant to help in your everyday in how you treat others, how you treat yourself and physically, emotionally in all these ways. And that's why we have a counseling center. That's why we mm-hmm. have a church. That's why we talk about these things. Our hope and uh, our belief is that following Jesus, um, we can begin to see healing even in this life and, and someday uh, perfected in heaven.
1: Yeah, that's right. I think um, a big hope for us is that people would find holistic, holistic, holistic is a word that gets thrown around a lot, but just the whole idea that my whole person can be healed and whole. And Jesus and, and the Lord is in the nitty gritty. He wants to be in the middle of yeah. what's going on in your day-to-day life, not just in the big spiritual, do your thing
0: oh. again.
1: Yeah, just not in those moments, but in the in the nitty gritty parts of it. He's in and through all things. He's not mm. relegated to a corner or pushed into a box. He's in and through everything in your life.
0: Yeah, preach it.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to get the last word on this one. <laughs> yeah, thanks.
0: Well, thank you for joining us this week, and really a great message from Dr. Tim. Uh, join us next week as we are going to continue the Sukkot series, and we look forward to seeing you then.